Well, good morning. How is everyone? Uh, If you will, go ahead and open your Bible or open your app to Romans chapter 12. We'll be in verses 9 and 10 this morning. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jacob Reed, and I'm not a staff member, which can I just say how good a job our staff does at serving us uh, this morning. I'm very thankful for them, for Jennifer. um, That's right, for Jennifer and Jared and Kyle. uh, They all had their staff anniversaries here. Uh, very recently, and we should be very thankful for these three. Um, But I'm not one of them. I'm one of you. I'm a member and Sunday school teacher, Hannah, my wife and I have been members here for six years, and we're glad to be here face-to-face with you uh, for the second week in a row. Um, Like those who are online right now, uh, streaming in, that's what we've done uh, due to this thing that we've all become very familiar with this COVID pandemic. Uh, But we also had a second uh, very, very influential factor that kept us at home a little bit longer than maybe we otherwise would have been. And that is the birth of our uh, daughter, Victoria, who will be four months old on Friday. Yeah, it's great. It's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Um, When we found out about a year ago that we were going to become parents, we experienced a lot of changes. Right? Those of you who are parents know this. Those of you who will be parents will experience this as well when your time comes in the future. Uh, a lot changed internally. Right? Uh, for me, I began to look around our house and think, okay, what needs to change? I painted a room for the first time in my house. I went to Lowe's and got some paint, picked out our colors, messed up quite a lot, got it all over our ceiling, praise God. Right? <laughs> Uh, most people don't look up there, but if you do, you'll find paint, right? I, be, I prepared a place for our child. Um, we bought a lot of things we normally would not otherwise buy. I've never seen so many tiny pieces of clothes in my life, right? Uh, Hannah will tell you that I was shocked by how small they were compared to me. Um, with this, I'm not, I'm not a small person, right? My sister will, will, will tell you that for sure. Um, but with this, with, with this news that came to us, there was a lot that changed, a lot of adjustments that we had to do. Uh, our whole life became oriented around this, this event, this birth of this child. Uh, we, we changed our schedule significantly. Uh, since she was born, we've experienced a, a significant lack of sleep, right? Um, it's involved a lot of personal sacrifice in terms of money, energy, time. And thinking about this, I've, I've wondered what motivates parents all over the world throughout all time to live in this way. And there's one, one word, a one word answer, and that is love, right? That is love. Parents are motivated. We are motivated to sacrifice the things that we desire, sacrifice our time, our money, our sleep, these things that we don't realize how strongly we needed or wanted them until we don't have them, uh, we we do that out of love. Which brings us directly to what we're studying today in Romans chapter 12. Um, Before we get into verses nine and 10, I wanna go back over uh, what we've studied up to this point, Uh, but looking at it in a slightly different way, uh, just to to get to the, the, really the first four words of verse nine, which I would argue are the most important in this whole chapter. 
Um, Katie, if you don't mind, go ahead and putting up on the screen. So I've broken this down, verses one through eight, uh, into four commands or four imperatives that Paul's given to us. Uh, in verse one, he said to, for us to present our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That's a command for who we should be. With that, in verse two, we heard that we should not be conformed to this world. We should instead be transformed by the renewal of our minds in Christ. In verse three, he tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, uh, but rather we should uh, put others above ourselves. And then as we heard last week in verses four through eight, we are to serve one another according to our gifts. Uh, and I hope that you picked up on uh, three qualifications there that John gave to us, that, that, that service should be selfless, it should be from our love of Christ, and not grudgingly, but joyfully and willingly. Now, one thing I want to point out is that these commands, we can break them into two categories, ones that are focused inwardly on ourselves and ones that are focused outwardly on each other, right? The command to present ourselves as sacrifices to God, uh, to be transformed according to his spirit, that's, that's within us. The way that we think about ourselves and the way that we serve one another, that's all external. And there's an underlying question here, which is how can we do any of that, right? How can we, how can we be a, a presentable sacrifice to God? How can we have transformed minds? How can we not think too highly of ourselves? Because we all know that we do that. If anyone thinks that they don't, we, we've, we've already lost. How can we truly serve one another? Before we answer that question, though, there's a, a clarification that I wanna offer to us. And that is we cannot ignore the spirit working within us, right? Paul, the way that Paul is writing here is how we live in response to that and, and with the spirit working within us. The language we're using today and the way we're thinking about it uh, is, is focused on what is our response. Um, but we have to remember that the spirit is working within us. So, um, how do, we, how do we fulfill these four things? Well, let's look at uh, Romans 12, verse nine and 10. The answer is right here in the first four words. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I'm reading from the ESV translation, but also want us to look at the NASB and the NIV translations as well, because I think it's helpful for the way that we can understand what Paul's saying. So in the NASB, looking just at verse nine for right now, Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, in, in the NIV, he says, let love be sincere. So uh, I'm going to pray for us, but we're gonna spend a lot of our time thinking about this first part where Paul says, let love be genuine and sincere, sincere and without hypocrisy. Uh, and then we will talk about, well, what does that look like uh, in our lives? So let me pray for us uh, quickly. Father, thank you for this time that we have just to hear from your word. We ask that we would live according to what you're calling us how you're, what the kind of people you're calling us to be here uh, in, this, uh, in this text. We ask that you would speak to our hearts, you would bring your word to us through, the, through, this, uh, through these verses from Romans. We ask that we would be transformed by your spirit, 
and that we would not get in the way of you working within us. And we just ask this in your name, amen. So, what is genuine love? This is our first point. In order to fulfill uh, these commands that Paul's given to us, we need to have a right view of love. We need to know what, is that, what does that mean? And that's, that's what I mean when I say a right view of love. We need to understand it correctly. If love is going to be the thing that orients our lives, that guides us as we follow Christ, we have to know what it is. And that begins, as all things do, with a definition, right? Uh, this is a difficult word for us in English. I'm gonna give you four examples so you know what I mean. I love pizza. I love my mother. I love my wife. And I love God. But if you think that I meant exactly the same thing in all four of those statements, then there's something, I'm gonna be in some serious trouble when I get home, if I meant the same thing, right? Uh, if not today, then when I go see my parents at Thanksgiving, hopefully, right? We know that in English, the, the, this word is not sufficient to communicate what we mean. Um, if Jared were up here, if I were like him and I geeked out over Greek, if I were a Greek geek, I love you, man. Um, <laughs> I could tell you the exact meaning of the word that Paul uses. Unfortunately, when it comes to the original Greek, it's all Greek to me. Uh, so we're gonna have to settle for looking at another place where Paul wrote in the New Testament, which is 1 Corinthians 13, uh, a text that is very familiar to many of us. We're gonna read from verses four and seven. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Uh, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Looking at the way that Paul describes love here in this chapter, there's one thing we can definitively say. Love is other-focused. If we love, we are not focused on ourselves, right? If we're focused on ourselves, we are not patient or kind with people. If we focus on ourselves, we are, envy, we are envious and boastful. So if we are not envious and boastful, then we are focused on other people. If we are arrogant and rude, is that not the definition of pride, of being self-centered, insisting on our own way, being irritable or resentful, or rejoicing at the wrongdoing of other people, but yet if we don't rejoice at the wrongdoing of other people, that means we're focused on what they're doing. And so that's what Paul is, that's, that's where he's writing from, that love is supposed to be focused on other people, not on ourselves. It is fundamentally something that does not focus on itself, and so we shouldn't do that either. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, talking about service, right? This is, this is very important for us to keep in mind. He says, if we don't have love when we serve, it's as if we were, we were a resounding gong, like we had a gong and we're just banging it. Or we went over here and grabbed these cymbals and clanged them together constantly. If we were all doing that, there's not a single person in here that would not look for the first opportunity to leave. Why? Because when we're focused on ourselves, it is not fun. It's not fun for other people. We all know that one person that's self-centered and we don't enjoy being around. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. When we're like that, we, we push people away. We push people away. Um, when we're so focused on ourselves, 
that we cannot care for others? Are we not an extreme nuisance? Are we not an extreme hindrance? Um, why, so why would, we, why would we live in that way? Additionally, we see that love is other-focused when we look at what Christ has done for us. Uh, I have two verses here for you from 1 John to consider. Uh, the first is 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Very definition of being focused on others. Very definition of love that we see in the, in the New Testament is Christ's sacrifice for us. How can we think of anything else that is more other-focused? Like when I think about all the things that I do for my daughter who cannot begin to take care of herself. None of that compares to what Christ has done for us at all, right? Uh, so it's something that I want you to keep in mind. This is the standard we're given. It's Christ's sacrifice, what he's done for us. To deviate, to move away from that definition would be to move away from the very gospel we say we believe. Um, so that is, that's, that's what love is. That's what love is. Second, what is it that we're called to love? Uh, this should be obvious, but sometimes the, most, the things we forget first are the things that are the most obvious. Uh, so, twofold. We're to love God, and we're to love the brothers. We're to love each other. Consider these verses. Unfortunately, these are not on the screen, so you'll have to listen closely. The first one is... Uh, from the Old Testament, a book that we love to quote all the time, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Secondly, John chapter 13, verse 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So obviously, the first and foremost object of our love, and I use the, I use the word object not like a thing, like we're not looking at each other like we're things or that God is a thing, but where our love is focused, uh, the, first, the first and foremost is God. If Paul is correct in saying, when he writes and says that we're the body of Christ, which he is correct in saying that. How can we ever hope to function properly if we don't love him first? If a physical body of any living creature is separated from its head, it will eventually die, even a cockroach, right? Uh, if we separate ourselves from our head, from Christ, we have no hope. That's it. We're done. If we don't love Christ, that's it. doesn't matter what else we do. Um, for a body to function properly, however, it also has to love itself. When Jesus talks about this, he doesn't separate our love for him from our love for one another. Think about uh, Matthew 22. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God, and the second's like this, love your neighbor as yourself. When John writes about it in 1 John, he says, writes about it as if they're the same thing. If you love the head, you love the body. 
So we don't need just genuine love for God, but also for one another. Uh, And this brings us to our motivation for why we love one another. Uh, I always like to think about why, why do we do the things that we do? It's so easy for us, particularly, I think, in the South and Southern Baptist churches, I say this having grown up in one, to get caught up in tradition, to get caught up in, well, this is what we're supposed to do. This is, this is how we've been raised. This is how it is. This is why we do it. Um, but we need to have a right understanding, a right motivation. And this is really straightforward. First of all, we're commanded. We're commanded. Uh, we saw this in, in John chapter 13, verse 35. Christ reiterates this command in Matthew 22 that I just referenced. Um, it's that simple, right? Why do we love? Well, God told us to love him and to love one another. Um, but we know that that's, a command is not sufficient. For children, telling them to obey is not enough to motivate them. It's not enough to produce actual love. It's not enough to produce life change within them. So a secondary motivation keeps us from becoming legalistic like the Pharisees. And that motivation is that we ourselves have received the love of Christ and have been transformed and have been saved. And the Spirit is working within us. Consider these verses as well. The first one is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, Christ died for us. This is something we all know. This should not be, this is not new. This is uh, what the most fundamental truth that we say we believe. Uh, so in 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 and 19, John writes again, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love each other. And in verse 19, we love because he loved us. When, uh, when I think about when I was growing up and all the things that my parents told me to do, I don't remember how many I did or didn't do, but I remember the times that I was obedient willfully was when I knew that they loved me. Those of you who have had, parent, who have had children uh, who are old enough to, to have the same experiences as me, you know that when they have true obedience, it's because they felt like you loved them. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Christ is the standard. Christ is the standard. The love we've received from him should be so transformative uh, that we live according to our new identity in him. Why do I obey my parents? Because I'm their child because I've been loved by them. And in that, I love them as well. Uh, We understand this truth clearly in day-to-day lives. When our identity changes, the way that we live also changes. I wanna give you a few personal examples. When I graduated high school uh, many years ago, not as long as uh, Joey Hocutt, though, um, when I moved here to go to college, uh, Joey, all right, <laughs> he, know, he, knows that, he knows that I love him too. Uh, the way that I lived when I came here to college changed. It had to. When you become a college student, y'all know you can't live like you're in high school anymore. That's a path to failure. There's new expectations, new requirements when you move somewhere else where your parents don't live, where that support no longer exists. 
You have to change the way that you live. When I graduated college and became a working adult, I could not live like a college student anymore. I could not stay up until 11 p.m. My father, who's been, uh, been working in his field for 35, almost 40 years now, I believe, has in recent years been telling me about uh, new people that come onto his projects that are around my age or a little bit younger. He tells me that the, the reason that many of them fail is because they try to live as if they're still in college. So we understand just by looking at day-to-day lives that the way that we live changes when our identity changes. I think about when Hannah and I got married, when I was no longer a single man or a single guy, became a married person, I could not live as if I were a bachelor. It would not have gone well for me, right? It would not have gone well for me. Becoming a parent, I can't live as if I don't have a child. It's ludicrous to think that, we, that, that anyone would do that. So when it comes to a new identity in Christ, why do we think that it's ever any different? It is the ultimate motivation for love, for God and for each other. We've been shown that. We, we are found in that. Our identity is rooted in that. So to summarize everything that I've said up to this point, to love genuinely, sincerely, without hypocrisy, without putting on a false face. Uh, As followers of Christ, we must unquestionably know that love is not focused on ourselves. Like we as parents love our newborn children with no expectation of receiving any benefit in return. My four-month-old can't give me anything I don't already have. So we must love one another. This is the love that we've been given by God. And we must be filled by it so that we overflow with love for him in return and love for one another in response. If we don't, we will get caught up in our own desires and ambitions. We will think too highly of ourselves. If we are consumed by our own pursuits, we will never be able to present ourselves as living sacrifices because we won't be focused on what God God has for us. Uh, We will never be transformed with renewed minds because we will always be conforming ourselves to the world around us. We'll never have a right view of ourselves. Instead, we would think too highly, constantly. We would never truly serve one another because we would have some sort of ulterior motive. We would be expecting something in return. The only way to have true righteousness and to be made into the image of God and to the image of Christ as opposed to just having an appearance of it, is through sincere, genuine, unhypocritical love for God and for one another. That's a right right view of love. That's a right understanding of it, is where where it's supposed to carry us. So let's think about how we can apply this. What is a correct or a right application of love? First of all, it's to ourselves. So this is the second half of verse nine. Uh, where Paul says to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. Uh, So there are things that we do, attitudes that we have, that have to change if we truly love Christ. Uh, We see that in the verses that we just read. Now, one thing that we have to understand is that sincere love is not universal. This is what I mean by that. Just because we have the love of God does not mean that we become loving of all things. Uh, Rather, we must be discerning and selective. 
this means, by definition, there are things that we have to hate. Uh, to return to the example of parenting, uh, if we love our children and seek their good, there are things that we oppose, things that we hate. For example, starvation, bodily, bodily harm, neglect, various forms of abuse, among other things. We understand this implicitly. We don't need anyone to explain that to us. Likewise, if we, if we love God, if we truly love Him genuinely, sincerely, without wearing a mask, we hate the things that are against Him. We hate the things that He hates. We hate the things that are contradictory to His nature. Uh, consider two short passages. The first one is 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We know, we understand that this world is broken. It doesn't take 30 seconds on the internet to discover that truth. Why would we pursue the things of the world if it leads to brokenness and destruction? Why would we uh, pursue the desires of our flesh? Why would we pursue the desires, the things that we see? Why would we care to feel prideful about our ultimately insignificant existence? There are people that have died this year, great people in our country, and we don't remember who they are. Instead, we pursue God. We pursue the thing that is eternal. That's God. Consider this passage as well. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're easy to see. They're clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, uh, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love that Paul just tacks that on. Like, if this isn't a good enough list, anything that's similar to this is also a work of the flesh. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we say we love God, why would we love these things? Why would we love the works of the flesh? It doesn't make sense. From Paul's perspective, he says we've already died to it. Why would we try to resuscitate or revive something we've actively put to death? That's why he says those who belong to Christ have crucified those things. Like they're gone. They should no longer be in our mind. One thing is very clear. God hates sin. And so should we. To be, to be like Christ, to be conformed to his image, we must also hate sin. The picture that I have in my mind that I often come back to when I think about this uh, is Jacob in the book of Genesis wrestling with God, where he says, I will not let go until you bless me. I just think about him holding on. We know that he had no chance. 
He says, I'm going to hold on until I receive your blessing. As followers of Christ, we are called to not let go. We're called to cling to, hold fast to what is good. What is good if not Christ? Uh, Until we are made perfect in his image, until we receive the blessing of perfection for all time. That means we should never let go while we're here on this earth. So that's uh, application of love to ourselves. Secondly, to others. Uh, it's important to note in the passages that, I've, that I read from first, uh, sorry, yeah, first John chapter two, Galatians chapter five, the works of the flesh and the things of the world are not described as people, but rather as actions and desires. This is an important distinction to make as many people in the church, I'm speaking generally here, Uh, particularly in Southern Baptist churches, have felt judged, unwanted, or even hated by various congregations. This is true of a lot of people my age. A lot of people my age, age of current college students to uh, early millennials, have left because they felt judged or hated, as opposed to uh, what Paul calls us to instead, which is two very specific things, loving one another and showing honor. Right, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. That's where we're going to begin. And how do we do that? Well, it's what John told us last week. It's by serving, by serving one another. We learned, uh, heard from John how we can use our gifts to serve one another. What Paul gave us in verses four through eight is not an exhaustive list. Uh, There's an unlimited number of ways that we can do that. Uh, This morning, we again want to make sure that we have the right perspective and attitude in response to what Christ has done. So why should we love one another with brotherly affection? Because we've been shown supreme love by Christ. We've been added into the fold as children of God. Why should we serve one another? Because Christ has served us, right, in his sacrifices, in his sacrifice, in the greatest way we could ever imagine. I keep returning to 1 John. We're going to look at a section from 1 John chapter 3. I think it's such an important book for understanding these concepts. Uh, I want to bring to your, to, to your mind 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, where John is setting up a contrast for us. What does it look like to love one another, and what does it look like not to love one another? So starting in verse 11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Okay, we should all agree on that. We should not be like Cain, John goes all the way back to the original two brothers in the Bible. Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. His heart was not oriented towards God or towards his brother. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Instead, how should we live? We already read verse 16. By this we know love. Christ laid down his life for us. And so what should we do? Lay down our lives for the brothers. We sacrifice. We pour ourselves out. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Two of our church members are not here this morning because they're living this out actively this weekend. Uh, Some friends of ours from college who left town several years ago, recently moved back to Alabama, not here, 
uh, recently had a late-term miscarriage this week. Two of our members have gone to care for them, sacrificing from their own life, and are actively living this out. That's what John means when he says, sees, the world, sees their brother in need, has the world's goods. What would it mean to close our heart against one another? To not serve, to not pour out, to not provide. Unlike our members who are actively doing that. I love what he says. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do we say that we love one another or do we actually love one another? That's the question that John's asking. So what does that mean? We serve one another, we sacrifice, we help when people are hurting. When someone's lacking, we provide. In all things, we serve one another as members of the same body. Secondly, uh, at the second, the end of verse 10, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. I have a little bit less to say here. Uh, But Paul says we should show honor to one another. This goes hand in hand with serving one another. Uh, But I want to pay special attention to the wording that Paul uses in the ESV translation specifically. Um, where he says, outdo one another in showing honor. The wording here sounds like it's a competition, right? Outdo one another, do better, do better than the other person at showing honor. But we need to recognize who is the winner in this competition. It's the person we show honor to, not us. It's the person we show honor to. This is why, uh, well, before I say that, if we're called to love genuinely, how could it be any other way? If we're trying to outdo one another, if we're trying to show honor so that we do better, then aren't we making it about ourselves and not about actually honoring? This is why in the NASB translation, it says to give preference to one another. In the NIV, it says honor one another above yourselves. It's the mentality, it's the perspective we're supposed to have. We are less valuable. When, when, when Christ was, when he sacrificed himself, the Bible tells us he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He gave up everything because he considered us more valuable in that moment. This is mirrored by Paul in Philippians 2 where he writes to do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition, but in humility count others as more significant. How, could we, how, could, how much could we do to build the kingdom of God if we all truly lived like this in Tuscaloosa, in Alabama, in America. The whole world would not be able to ignore the fact that we are God's children because of how extremely we display our love for one another. How impossible would it be for the world to call us hypocritical? This is a common critique of the church, that we're hypocritical or hateful. They wouldn't be able to do that if we showed genuine love and honor. If we love one another in response to the love given to us by Christ, what will happen? That love will continue to multiply and overflow without end. Now, I don't want to talk about these verses in only a conceptual way. I also want to bring us some specific applications. Uh, And I'm going to bring these in the form of rhetorical questions for us to ask ourselves. So these are as much for me as they are for any, any given one of you. Um, I don't know your hearts. I only know me. Um, clearly our church has gone through some difficult things this summer. 
Uh, I don't know how you all feel. I only know how I feel. Uh, And so coming out of that at this point, looking forward to the end of the year, do we have genuine, sincere, unhypocritical love? I have five questions for you. First one, do we have a genuine love for Christ? Do we love Christ? Both as individuals and as a congregation. As Alberta Baptist Church, do we view Christ as the most important thing? Or do we try to hold on to our preferences? Do we try to hold on to our traditions? Things that appear to be good, but maybe aren't bringing us life. Maybe are not the working of the Spirit. Or maybe individually, some of us are struggling with that. I know I do. I assume that you do as well. Do we have genuine love for one another? With that, here's a kind of a pointed question. Is there anyone in this room right now that you do not feel genuine, sincere, unhypocritical love towards? There might be. For those who are at home watching, is there anyone in this congregation that you do not feel genuine, unhypocritical, sincere love for? Anyone who's been in my Sunday school class knows that I've struggled with this personally. And I don't mean this to be prideful, I just mean to say that I struggled. I had to make personal phone calls to get beyond this because it's hard, right? What is our default? To care about our own desires above other people. Um, Fourth question, do we as individuals and as a church feel the love of Christ for those who are no longer a part of this congregation? Or do we struggle with that? What about other churches around us? Do we see them as competition? Or do we love them too, as fellow workers of Christ in this city, working towards the same goal? Those are questions I cannot answer for anyone other than myself. Uh, What if the answer to any of those questions is, no, I don't feel genuine love? What do we do then? How can we course correct so that we do live in genuine love? When a child is not living obediently towards a parent, what are they called to do? What are they supposed to do? Be obedient. They do not become obedient first and then do the things that they were asked to do by their parent. By doing the things they were asked to do, they repent of their disobedience and become obedient. So, It is the same with loving one another. If anyone here does not feel love towards a brother or sister, what do we do? We love them. We love them. First, we love Christ. We make sure that we truly have Christ in the forefront of our minds and hearts. And then we seek to love one another as Christ has loved us. For some of us, this might mean serving in a way that we never have before in the church. For some of us, this might mean talking to somebody in the room. Again, I don't know where you're at other than physically in here. I don't know where you're at, right? Some of you may need to talk to somebody in this room. Some of you may need to have a phone call on the way home from work later this week. Or you may need to get coffee or lunch or go to somebody's house with appropriate safety precautions. When we, re- when we repent of any sin, right, we always talk about sin as turning away from sin and turning to Christ. We can't have one without the other. 
repenting and living in what we've been called to is only done by doing the thing that we've been called to do. And in that it is following Christ and loving one another. So as Jennifer and the band comes back up, I want to leave you with one final verse from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The love of Christ has covered all of our sins. The love that we have for one another can cover the wrongs that we've done or felt, if we let it. But we have to choose for it to do so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this message that you have for us. Um, To let our love for you and for one another be genuine, to be sincere, to be unhypocritical. We ask that we would truly live this way, both for you and for one another uh, as members of this body. Father, if in any way in our hearts, I'm thinking of Philippians chapter three, where Paul says, I've not attained the perfection of Christ, but one thing I do, I press on towards the upward call. Uh, of, being, of being made into your image. We ask that we would actually do that, that empowered by your spirit this morning, uh, we, we, would, we would cling to you. We would be united in our love for one another because of who we are in you. So we just ask that, that you would reveal to us where we fall short, that we might repent. We just ask this in your name, amen.